Freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Hi, culminators. You know, you're getting tired of hearing me tell you how excited I am about the, the various guests, but Adrian Vermeule, ladies and gentlemen, the irascible, impossible, truly unique thinker, Adrian Vermeule, who you love and appreciate and in many cases, scorn and excoriate on Twitter because of his unique views, even if you're a conservative or a certain kind of conservative. Adrian, thank you for joining us. Great to be here, Ron. So for those of you who may not know, Adrian is a professor at the Harvard Law School, and he writes stuff, as law professors will do. This is uh, one of the stuffs he has written fairly recently. And what unique what the unique perspective that adrian brings to the table and it will be relevant to our conversation and to the overall topic of uh censorship cancel culture it's a putative topic anyway what adrian's hypothesis is uh, as you can see well i'm not going to make you read the book review but adrian has taken the position that the the there's been a, an evolution away from judicial, the role of the courts as a policymaking, uh, a policymaking uh, institution towards the administrative state, towards agencies, towards specialized government workers who are specialized, and that that's actually quite quite natural. It's quite, it's quite appropriate. It's what the Constitution intended. Or, and, and, and he, you know, he's got a little bit of uh, heat for that, a lot, some praise as well, because you know, as, as, as someone who used to do a lot of intellectual property work, this is still part of the introduction, Adrian, I do, you get, you do get to talk on my podcast. <laughs> no worries. This is, I'm, I'm learning. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's a famous quotation from Judge Learned Hand, which I should have had prepared here, about how preposterous, well, no, I'm not even, yes, it was Judge Learned Hand, that it was about 80 years ago, how preposterous it was to assume that just because someone has been uh, appointed to the federal bench by the President of the United States, confirmed by the Senate, that he is qualified to judge patent cases. They're, they're, you have to be basically in it. In order to, to be admitted to the patent bar, you have to have a science degree or science background. And yet judges are making these multi-billion dollar decisions with no such requirement whatsoever. So that would seem to be right in line with the, you know, your, the thrust of your administrative law point. No? Yeah, I... I'd put things this way, I suppose. Um, 
Well, first of all, the the book you put up is sort of two books ago, so I have to oh, you got to update uh, yes, re reload right. it in my mind. Um, but but you'll you'll see where you'll see how I'm gonna. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the thrust of the book is just this: that um, our written constitution and our small c constitution, in the older sense, that is the basic institutional arrangements of the American polity have um, uh, come apart to some degree. Uh, our actual operating small c constitution is an administrative state. And it's here to stay whether we like it or not. And I think that has a lot of implications for um, people who think of themselves as not progressive, call them conservative if you like. It has implications for what they ought to do and how they ought to orient themselves in America 2021. So um, some of my uh, libertarian colleagues in the law professor world want to uh, uh, abolish or substantially roll back the administrative state. And I don't think they can. I think that for non-progressives, the aim should be to orient the administrative state and steer it towards the common good. And that is really the subject of my um, upcoming book on common good constitutionalism. All so right, that's but, the basic idea, yeah. But would it be fair to say that in your more recent book, and I'm going to skip over the risk book. In your more recent book, that uh, the law and limits of reason, that you begin to move in that direction. Yeah, I think that's fair. That is the the more recent book is um, one I did called "Law and Leviathan: Redeeming the Administrative State." Oh, that's right. And that is right. the one that really um, the. Uh, it's there on the right. Yeah, that yeah. is the one that really, I think, starts to develop this theme. What I want to get to, though, is to is to now switch, switch around, and I do think I'm going to end up bringing it all together. So here we are in this sort of post-judicial world, quasi-post-judicial world, and we're handing things off to administrations, to, to, admit, to administrators. And at the same time, we're seeing that private institutions are, that, 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 that we're also handing off the job of, of censorship of public discourse to private institutions such as academia and corporations. Does it seem to you that we're in that we're in danger of not only making courts irrelevant, but making the things like the constitutional guarantees of free speech irrelevant? So I have a somewhat different, well, to to be fair, a radically different take on <laughs> free speech, and I think of it as the view of free speech that was absolutely standard in the classical legal tradition until shockingly recently, until really the 1970s when the Supreme Court embarked on a 
kind of libertarian account of free speech. And the classical view, which is very much the view of the founders and any self-respecting originalist, in my view, should ad adopt it. The classical view is that um, the public authorities have a uh, legitimate function in promoting uh, peace, order, and public morals and can regulate speech to that end. So the classical view was that people have a right of, to speak um, uh, in uh, kind of publicly useful ways. Um, they could speak, uh, they can criticize the government, absolutely. Whether it's political then, speech, classic political speech. Exactly. But there was, um, there was no idea that the government couldn't ban pornography or couldn't um, regulate um, things that the Supreme Court has made unregulable today. The example that really gets to me, and I talk about it in my forthcoming book at some length, is a case called Ashcroft versus Free Speech Coalition, in which the Supreme Court said that, um, I'm going to simplify uh, greatly, but the Supreme Court said that the uh, Congress couldn't ban the production of virtual child pornography by computer-generated images. Um, and that seems to me a, a radical departure from um, the whole Western legal tradition. The idea that, um, as Justice Kennedy, maybe my least favorite justice, wrote for the court, well, no actual children are harmed in the production of computer-generated child pornography. So um, this is an attempt to suppress speech based on its content uh, without, without any harm justification. And, and that seems to me almost I, lunatic, yeah. Poor not, the, the, premise, the premise of anti-pornography regulation has never been harm to those involved in it or that they were necessarily even reality-based at all. Lady, Ch Lady Chatterley's lover was a work of fiction. Nobody, right. no, no animals or people were harmed in the, in the authorship or publication of that, of that novel. But I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that that is the level of, the appropriate level of censorship. I'm not saying that it's not. But yeah. it, for him to make that, and for the court to get on board with this idea that no harm, no foul, it, there is really nothing left of pornography law in this country anymore, is there? Exactly. And it, one wonders what we've come to where our supposedly leading judges struggle even to understand the idea that pornography might corrode the public morals of the whole community. It's not that they exactly think that's wrong. It's that they, they don't even understand it. They're, they have some kind of conceptual framework that prevents them from even seeing it. But the, but the evidence of it is all around us. Um, and that, to my mind, is what we've got to work on. So pornography has the advantage of being an easy case for people who believe as you do and I happen to, that it is appropriate for a society to 
and for a legal system to take that interest. And, I, and which I think what that belief was baked into First Amendment jurisprudence until that case. Let's move off pornography, though, because for some reason, it's a special case. And now let's get into the political censorship. Yeah, and because it is 2021 and everything's political. Everything's political. So your opinion or my opinion on how an election was conducted is political. What is an appropriate medical treatment or medication or policy regarding medication for, for a medical condition is political. Corp so let me take a step back. We're yeah. involved in a case in, where, in which we are suing the state of California, Secretary of State of the State of California, and Twitter, and a whole bunch of other related parties for conspiring to remove the Twitter account of a guy named Ro uh, Rogan O'Handley, who's known mm. as DC Drano. He has 2 mm. million followers on Instagram. And he made a, an untoward characterization of California election security a week after the election, mm. but, but was flagged by this election security commissar, uh, uh, um, uh, what is it? Um, not a, not a, ministry in yeah. the state of California, which then pressed, basically, basically pressed or belled that rings at Twitter. And in 98% of the cases where that bell rang at Twitter, they took the action requested by the state government. So we're making the argument that Twitter is a state actor. It's not that important to us whether the court agrees with us on that, because the real point here is that regardless, I mean, it is important, but it, what's more important is that there's a gigantic problem with government outsourcing censorship, which is right. exactly what happened there. Right. What we find, and we had an excellent oral argument on this case a few, couple of weeks ago, and we feel that it went very well, but there are a lot, your books reflect, especially your administrative law work, I think a very, very healthy and meaningful dose of legal realism. In other words, you might like this, this idea of princes of the law, but as a practical matter, here's how it really happens. It really happens mm -hmm. in the agencies. It really happens like this. Judges have been hypnotized by Section 230. Right. And I think this judge wasn't. But here, there's this. Here, you've got the agency, the California Election Security Bureau. And here, you've got the corporate governance of Twitter, which is more powerful than most of the world's nation states. And here, you've got the individual who is a user of Twitter, but not really a customer of Twitter. And then you've got the judiciary, which so far, especially in the Ninth Circuit, has tended really strongly to defer to corporate determinations 
of what is appropriate, what's what's good First Amendment, you know, what their rights are under the First Amendment, what their rights are under under Section 230. Is there a singularity going on here, you know, that you see based on on the work that you've done on the topics that we're talking about that could, you know, in any way illuminate where we're going? I think so. So I would relate this to a point you made earlier about corporate and university bureaucracies. Um, And I would distinguish two two questions. One is, um, what scope does the public authority have for regulating speech in the interests of peace, order, and public morals? A different question is the question of the confusion of public and private functions. And that to me is in some ways the more central problem of America 2021. That is that, as you said, so much governance has been outsourced to um, corporations that uh, claim to be private entities when it suits them, but also claim a kind of public function in regulating the the public square and the form in which people express political views. I wrote a piece called Monstrous Government, and I drew on this classical lawyer um, who said that the real decay of a regime is when you have a multiplicity of tyrants who are uh, quote unquote private and who are more powerful than the public authority and are not subject to control by the public authority. And, And that rings profoundly true to me about America today. That is that our our public square is being run in this ambiguous way by firms um, that don't have the public interest at heart. And, and which under, under libertarian theory and under free market theory shouldn't. There's no reason that they should, no reason on earth that they should. Absolutely. So the libertarians are our problem of, on both of your prongs. Yeah. They, not, I want to say they, but I want to say, but I will say that every single one I've ever met <laughs> seem to think that if it's a privately owned entity, you know, and obviously other people I've spoken to don't, don't, including many conservatives, don't think this, but if it's a privately owned entity, we've got, and government's got nothing to say about it. Regardless of how, you know, wh- whether you want to use your term of common good, and I'm going to get back to that in a minute, or, but regardless of the social effect on, on human lives in this country. Right. And when we say that, we start hearing it ourselves sounding like the, the, the old new left of, of our childhood, but there it is. Right. And on the other hand, we've got a, 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 a movement that was raised on, on the National Review, like me, mm. where you had at once, you know, you had, well, you had the famous... Um, what was it called? The, the not dualism, the, the uh, fusionism. Fusionism, which was that yeah. we're going to we're going to you know Buckley, of course, was a was a very conservative Catholic, and certainly a friend of public morality as an appropriate 
government function. And at the same time, very libertarian oriented, certainly as to economics. And most of the very young people in the, in the, on the right now, the, the people who consider me their, their social media daddy, okay? <laughs> they're, they're reflexively libertarian, except mm. perhaps on the issue of pro-life, mm. which is kind of an interesting yeah. topic, which is beyond, prop, beyond our, our scope today, I think. But they tend to be pretty agnostic on issues of sexual morality. And they, you know, they, they talk a lot about liberty, but very, and they, and they even talk about culture but not too much about what, what defines the culture that they think should be preserved. And now it's 2021 and you have come out very strongly as in your, in your common good and in your writings on also on, you know, the role of, to the extent it's not covered by common good, the role of a theological point of view right. in public life, um, saying, hey, we've got to come down somewhere. And that means we have to start defining our terms. Is that, is, is that possible in any meaningful way anymore? I think it is. So I am a... Uh, realist, not only in the sense you correctly identified, um, but uh, also in the older sense that I think there really is an objective moral law and that this is a found foundational to be to the Western, to the Judeo-Christian tradition. And we can't abandon the idea that uh, Although people may disagree, there is truth. There is truth about what is uh, in the common good, what promotes uh, social flourishing, and the flourishing of a polity. If we abandon that, we're done. Um, so I think that um, what we need to do is uh, recognize a couple things. First, that culture can't flourish without the protection and promotion of a healthy culture by public authority. Sort of culture can't um, flourish in a, a polity in which the public authority is in some way diseased or fractured, as we've discussed. And the second thing is that the um, um, autonomy can no longer be the kind of watchword of our political order. That is, we, we've got to get beyond the idea that the only function of public authority is to maximize the liberty of each subject to the like liberty of all that kind of thing. We've thought that for two generations now, and I think it's created a disastrous environment in which uh, people are um, hurting themselves and hurting the social fabric um, through, um, well, you know, all, you know, all the problems. So, um, I, I do think that 
we need to reassert an objective moral order and we need to reassert it through public authority. And that's why I'm not a liber libertarian in any way. So we have, we have a, a state of affairs where we not only have this sort of um, atomism, yeah. which, is, which is championed as individualism. Right. And as Orthodox religionists, we know, you and I, and those who think like us, that the individual is not the be-all and end-all. There's a, an extraordinary sig significance to each and every human life and every, the dignity of every human life, but only when appreciated as part of God's creation. Exactly. On the, so what we have though, of course, is another knee jerk inclination within our culture, including among the most sophisticated, which is who will define who and how will we define what that common good is? If it's, and, and is it gonna be, a, is it a theological definition? And this came up rather surprisingly in the main school uh, choice case a couple of weeks ago where the justices started asking, what, what is a religion? What is a set of values? What does the First Amendment actually prohibit a school from, from teaching? Um, when we say that we're going to reassert non-individualistic values, and you talk about common good, are we not, how do, you, how, do, how do you respond to the criticism that says, well, that, that's just a mirror image of, total, of totalitarianism, that individuals don't count, but rather the people count, the proletariat counts, something like that. What's the response? So the, the classical tradition of the common good has been always and everywhere an enemy of totalitarianism. It was an enemy of, for example, Nazism and fascism in the middle of the 20th century. And the reason is that the common good tradition does not think that the aim of government is to simply sacrifice or override um, individual well-being in the interests of some aggregate collective. It says rather that life in a flourishing polity where flourishing is defined according to the objective moral law is itself best for individuals and that such a flourishing polity itself includes respect for things like the family, things like um, the individual conscience within the bounds of public morality and public order. So it incorporates within it um, respect for human dignity, which is a foundational principle both of, of Catholic theology and of Jewish theology um, in my imperfect understanding of it. And, and so there, there is no claim that we want to subsume the individual in a mass. What we want to do is simply to understand that the individual cannot live a dignified life unless 
the polity is also flourishing according to the moral law. When we have a polity that isn't flourishing according to the moral law, we have individuals suffering, we have them overdosing on fentanyl, we have them jobless, we have them living lives distorted and warped by pornography, by um, these other uh, symptoms of social breakdown, suicide. Um, America 2021 is a country in which life expectancy has been declining for multiple years in a row, which is basically unheard of in advanced, advanced um, nations. Something's very wrong. And I don't think we need to have, we don't need to get into elaborate um, discussions about the differences, for example, between Catholic and Jewish theology at this point, because right. America twenty twenty one is so far from so far from anything that's healthy that um, the our common ground is much greater than um, any disagreements we could possibly have. If that makes any sense, it makes a lot. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, isn't it basically what most even non religious uh, but nonetheless, traditionally oriented people would think of as traditional morality, the, the sort of basic moral standards that were in place in the middle of the 20 of the 20th century in the in the in the 50s. But without yeah, I mean, without the uh, without necessarily the acceptance of, 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 of bigotry of bigotry that was, you know, still much more common. then. That's right. I mean, the the. I put it this way, the natural law is accessible to the reason of all mankind. You don't have to be expressly Catholic or anything else to understand um, the kind of core components of the natural law. And um, we're so far from those core uh, values or components that the the, the stuff about theological sectarianism is, is usually offered in bad faith. It's usually offered by people who want to create divisions that don't, don't exist um, under current circumstances, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense, especially when you come from the point of view of Catholicism, which is always a convenient whipping boy in, in American liberal politics. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, to think that in the 21st century, judicial nominees are being asked about the influence of the Vatican, you know, on, on their, on, on their judicial philosophy. And <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's Al Smith is rolling in his grave. He died for nothing. You know, it's just unbelievable. I suppose then the question is, first of all, I, I'm going to ask you, if you can, I'm sure you, since you've spoken on this so many times, what, when do we, you, you refer to the common good tradition. Is that something that goes back to scholasticism? Is it something that goes back to, to the, is it an early 20th century conception? What, what? Oh, no, it's, 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 I mean, it's, it's the mainstream of the Western legal tradition. Um, going back to Roman law. It incorporates uh, Roman law, which itself incorporates, um, uh, well, after the Romans become Christian, their law incorporates both elements of the 
law of the Old Testament and of the New Testament and combines it with the uh, pagan Roman law. And we get this very rich thing called the use commune, which is the kind of mainstream of the Western legal tradition. And one of my points is that this is our tradition until shockingly recently. So it's something that um, uh, exists in our law well into the 20th century. It's participated in by Catholic justices, Protestant justices, Jewish justices like Brandeis and Cardozo who had a classical education. And it's really not until after World War II and especially the 1960s and 1970s that it starts to break down into this kind of libertarian and, and positivist view that rejects um, in some cases the existence of the natural law. Um, but aren't you sort of a positivist yourself? You have, uh, you, you've also written ab about the, how le legislatures are essentially, uh, by virtue of, 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 their di of their diverse makeup in a rep even in a representative democracy, yeah. ha have this sort of self-correcting tendency. Now, how, do, how does that jibe with the administrative state as, yeah, it, it's, I, I understand what you're saying because um, many people who are positivists think that uh, legislative codes are the be all and end all, but um, I am not a, uh, I'm not a fan of legislatures on, on positivist grounds. That is the classical tradition in, said that among the principles of political morality is what we might call role morality. That is the idea that judges don't decide everything, that there is a scope for legislatures to make the natural law more specific and sort of bring it down to the ground. So the natural law might say something like, well, uh, you shouldn't be able to sue someone you know, decades after the fact, but you need a legislature to make that more specific and create a, a statute of limitations for specific offenses, that kind of thing. So legislatures have an important role to play, but um, precisely because we entrust them with promoting um, public morals and promoting this, this flourishing order of the common good. If we've lost the way in the last 40 or 50 years, not only in our precedents, but also in the culture. Yeah. If we were somehow, you and I, able to wave a magic wand and get yes. all the judges to see the light on this, yes. where would they go to base their decisions on a, on a, not to base it, but rather to frame it in a common good approach as you advocate? Yeah, so this is one of my, um, I guess running disagreements with the people you described as the fusionists or um, the kind of national review crowd. So I believe that um, there is a powerful role in any legal system and in our legal system for um, elite influence, that is for people with the right views to uh, make decisions, both judicial and um, executive, legislative, that themselves shape and influence the culture. And we've seen that over and over again, 
the progressives are very good at this. They have no embarrassment about this. They um, uh, uh, decide a case like Obergefell and then uh, within a few years, everybody agrees because they understand that the law is a teacher and it has this influence on, on the culture. So um, I, I think that is the way forward for us. Um, the, de the details I'll uh, um, just say are in my forthcoming book, but um, uh, some, of the some of the examples are recasting free speech law to um, allow much more scope for um, the regulation along classical lines. Um, rethinking uh, cases like the Bostock decision, which um, said that um, uh, uh, gender identity is, a, is sort of protected under Title VII and has subsequently been used um, by other courts uh, even to extrapolate constitutional rights of gender identity. Um, and um, on the economic front, uh, I am, uh, this is where I, I think I become a little more like old left than new right or something. I'm very hospitable to government promoting a healthy natural environment. I think that's part of the flourishing of the political community. So um, there are all sorts of uh, fronts on which we can move. Um, but yeah, go ahead. You've obviously read The Power Broker. Uh, the, oh, Robert Moses. Right. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I, I think I read it some time ago, like years ago. You have to refresh my. Yeah. Well, he, he firmly believed. And after his education at Yale and Oxford. More firmly than ever, that everything should, in fact, be managed by the right men, the right uh -huh. men. And he was not a progressive. In fact, he in many respects, he was quite a reactionary. And he single-handedly shaped New York, the entire New York metropolitan area in immense ways, immense ways for well, forever. And one of the criticisms, so, so in many respects, it seemed, you know, there's always this problem of deciding who, who there's an accountability problem for one thing. And yeah. secondly, look at our elites. At what you men mean by elites is not what they mean by elites at the New York Times and the Washington Post, who consider themselves the elites. It's the people right. who have educations like yours and mine, but not the views like yours and mine. Right. So those are the details, I think. I don't think I need to necessarily get into the your, your answer for the, the, the fine points of legal decisions and, and theological or moral distinctions, but I guess it's about building up a new cadre of elites. There's no alternative to that. I, I don't think that there's ever been a time in American history when elites didn't have a profoundly outsized influence on um, what government does on culture, on society. So uh, the idea that um, because of the risk of elite abuse of power, we can somehow do something else is, is, a, is, is a kind of mistake. 
And well, meanwhile, we... Harvard just dropped the SAT. <laughs> right, right. Um, which, well, may or may not be that's directly a... related, but it tells you <laughs> where the quest for quality is moving. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's why um, uh, we need to, I think, proceed on two, two fronts in the, towards the formation of a new elite. One is to be unashamed about using public authority to shape what the universities do. So I wrote a piece uh, with a colleague of mine a few years ago about how a, a new administration should use uh, expressly use funding and other sticks and carrots to um, uh, reshape and direct universities um, towards training elites with a, a, a different sort of view. And that is, should in my view be agenda item number one um, uh, for um, the next conservative, conservative administration. The other thing we need to do is uh, to uh, form new institutions altogether. That is to get out from under the grip of progressives on these institutions and to uh, uh, start new universities, start new um, programs, uh, start new schools, ways of training elites um, that uh, will not pay off immediately, but will pay off a generation from now. And, and and that's a trick. That's a really that's a really ambitious project. I, I'm going to say in, in our in our final couple of minutes here because brands elites are usually identified through the use of flags because you can't. Well, I, I can't say you can't. In other countries, there are extensive skill and knowledge tests that are given to qualify for certain kinds of government work. For example, in the right. United States, we there, there are civil service tests. But what we generally have is a Harvard degree, a Princeton degree. He's one of us. And brands, going back to my old emphasis on my work, brands are the flags in what gets recognized as elites by elites. So you have to, to some extent, that's happening with the creation of alternative media. And the conversation we're having right now isn't on PBS, because, and it never will be on PBS, but people who want to listen to it are free to download it or watch it on even YouTube. And that's become an acceptable form of discourse. So the opening is there. Right. I think that the um, progressives are actually um, hurting themselves, but maybe this is wishful thinking, but I actually think that they are overconfident that their brand is eternal. And when they do things like eliminate the SATs, they create the possibility that other institutions that do select for actual merit, actual quality, will then suddenly become far more attractive to young people who can use that as a signal to employers and others that um, they, um, they are smart or they are learned or whatever. So I'm not so sure that the progressives are playing their hand well um, on, on that dimension. I think they probably aren't. I think there is a, a medium and a, and a long term on that that can't be good for them. It, it, it's simple. At the end of the day, brand 
alone will only get you so far. There's got to be, you got to be able to deliver. And increasingly, what I am hearing from people in business is that they are having a great deal of trouble right. filling positions with truly qualified people because of the need to represent and diversify. And it's not doing anyone any favor to pretend just like you would not put me in center field on the Yankees, not yeah. now yeah. and not 35 years ago, <laughs> just because they don't have enough Orthodox Jewish baseball players in the Bronx. Uh, similarly ellipse Adrian, thank you. I, I, I feel like I could do this all day, but it's not fair to anyone involved other than me if we did. So thank you very much for joining it's us. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. The honor's all mine. And when the new book comes out, keep us in mind. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Okay. Take so care. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.